You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome to Music Tectonics, the podcast where we explore all the ways music and tech collide and combine, and how that combination can be inspired by and can change our minds and lives. I'm your host for this episode, Trista Neuer Jaeger, strategist at Rock Paper Scissors, the music tech PR firm. We are going to go deeply seasonal today, and I'm really excited. So, for those of you outside the U.S. or who aren't, you know, in the parts of the world where Halloween has spread, it's almost Halloween, and that's the creepiest, most awesome holiday that we get to celebrate here in the states. So, music and tech have long played their own very special ghoulish roles in making Halloween especially terrifying. And this conversation is basically for anyone who's ever had the daylight scared out of them by sound, and also for anyone fascinated with our brains, our emotions, and music. To help us get ready for the fantastic Halloween holiday, we're turning to our guest, Dr. Caitlin Trevor, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience Lab at the University of Zurich's Department of Psychology. Dr. Trevor specializes in music cognition. In particular, as it relates to our emotions and specifically to fear. All right, she's also a cellist, which isn't a particularly terrifying instrument, but maybe we can get into that.、Um, <laughs> with a strong academic background in music and musicology. So, thanks so much for joining us. Is it okay if I call you Caitlin, Dr. Trevor? Oh, absolutely, please.、Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> so, tell us a bit about your professional life. What exactly is affective neuroscience, and how is it different from other related disciplines? That's a good question.、Um, my lab is really interested in the voice and in music, and particularly how both of those things communicate <clears throat> emotion, and then how how we Can kind of how emotions are processed in the brain. So what neural network networks are active for vocal emotions and musical emotions and and both of those things. So I think it's more just a focus of what you're really looking at in the brain rather than maybe other things like decision neuroscience or I don't know、um, social neuroscience or something like that. I was really curious how you got interested in music cognition as a field of study. So what? What what got you launched on that particular path?、Um, well, I've always loved music. I mean, my my background is much more a musician than a, a researcher. Actually, at least it, it used to be.、Um, I play the cello, and I played all the way through grad school.、Um, I actually got a master's in that while I was there, and I did some composing. And I used to really want to be a film composer. That was my big dream for most of my childhood.、Um, and then when I was in college, I went to a lecture. And it was really random. It was just because I was a RA, a resident assistant for a dorm, and they made us go to stuff occasionally to to just I don't know, you know, grow and like experience culture. And it was this professor who was new. He was a music theory professor, and he gave a talk about music cognition and the Mozart effect and how it was really a completely false phenomenon, or at least the research that went into it was really not very well done. And I was totally hooked. Like from that presentation, I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is the coolest field!" And I had no idea it existed until then.、Um, so from there, I kind of shifted gears. Like he became kind of my mentor toward the end of my undergrad.、Uh, this is Joe Plazak. He's not really in、um, research or uh, in uh, academia anymore, but、um, still a huge mentor for me. And then I ended up at Ohio State to work with his previous mentor,、um, David Huron, and.、Uh, What's great about what was great about that program was 
how much I was encouraged to be really interdisciplinary there. So I wasn't supposed to like pick just the cello or just music theory or just music cognition or just composing. I could do all of them, um, which was amazing. And I think it really helped me understand, you know, kind of transition into this more psychological field with this real value of the, the musical knowledge that was being brought as well. Um, yeah, so then I finished my PhD and I was already very interested during my studies in the voice and, and how music mimics the voice, especially because as a performer and as a composer, I noticed so many times in which um, we musicians describe musical behaviors as sort of vocal ones, you know, when they're teaching or um, when they're even composers, when they write, you know, to musicians how to play, they'll often kind of say something that sounds voice-like, like this needs to be whispered and this needs to be, you know, yelling or something. Um, and so I was looking for postdocs. Um, I was actually trying to move to Switzerland because my husband uh, got a job here first <laughs> and he was my boyfriend at the time, but I really wanted to move to Switzerland. And I found this lab that was just, could not have been a better fit. And so I tried, I applied for a Mary Curie grant to work there and I got really lucky and managed to achieve that. So that, that's what I'm doing here. I really made a hard turn into the sciences and have um, been learning a lot about neuroscience since I got here and fMRI and eye tracking. And yeah, and so then what I specialize in now because of my grant is music and fear. And basically it's this, no, oh, sorry. No, 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 this is perfect. <laughs> I was going to ask you why, why fear? What what drew you to fear? That's a pretty intense uh, uh, area of study. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I am a really big um, horror film fan, I have to say. And I was listening to a lot of horror film soundtracks. And I heard that there was really, it's a really interesting world, that particular type of soundtrack, because it's so closely combined with sound effects. It's really, I think, the most kind of mimic, like um, direct mimicry of vocal sounds and natural sounds you're going to find in these horror film soundtracks. So for me, that's a perfect kind of case study to really examine this connection between the voice and music and between natural sounds and music. Um, I also felt that it hadn't really been studied super in depth, especially from a music cognition standpoint. Like fear is often a category in a music and emotion studies, but that's kind of it. Like I felt like there wasn't a lot of information on, on that particular emotion in music. And some, I've even heard, I, I can't remember what researchers or papers this was in, but I did hear that some people even believe music can't really scare you on its own. Like it can only scare you with a film, with images. And oh I my think gosh. that's really, really not true. I have some podcasts <laughs> I need to send to these skeptics. Um, pretty, <laughs> music can scare the living daylights out of you easily. Um, Oh, yeah. So how did your train, you're a trained musician as well. Um, I'm curious how your musical training has helped you, uh, has helped inspire or influence how you conduct research. Are there any skills or um, things that you feel like you bring to the table because you've engaged with, you know, cello performance or other musical activities that um, enhances your work as a scientist? That's a good question. Um, I think... It helps me with my question formation, for sure. I think um, I come with this perspective of actually performing and playing music, and that means that the questions I ask are driven by that kind of background. Sometimes 
when people do music cognition research and they're only from psychology and they've never played an instrument or, or done anything musical, the questions they ask can feel a little bit out of touch from what really is happening in the music world. Um, so that's probably the strongest thing that I bring. You know, sometimes we'll be in a lab discussion about a paper and I'll be able to mention some music theory concept that they've never heard of that kind of touches into what they looking at. So that's, that's, um, that's probably the biggest strength for music. Maybe also just uh, improvisation. I have to say that can sometimes help in research. I can um, imagine. I think musicians, you have to think on your feet quite a lot, right? Um, and when we present or teach or often, the, you know, bugs happen when you're collecting data, that can, that helps a lot. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, the improvising scientist People forget that, well, if you think, though, I mean, to again, to sort of keep on the Halloween theme, if we go back to the sort of 19th century labs that inspired, um, you know, early horror writing, like I'm thinking of Mary Shelley, uh, there was oh, yeah. everything was improvised. You built it all yourself and you just saw how it worked. It's uh, so science still has a lot of that ingenuity in it. Um, cool. Well, we're going to take a little break and then I want to dive much deeper into exactly um, what you're looking at and how you approach uh, music, the voice and fear. Hey, it's me again. When the pandemic hit, we weren't quite sure what to do about the Music Tectonics Conference this year. And so early on, we were just trying to think with so many unpredictable things, with so much uncertainty, whether it was masks or vaccines or um, variants or boosters, what could we offer to the Music Tectonics community this year that would be a sure thing? And so we decided to do a hybrid model. And what that means is most of our conference this year is online. We're using Hopin, which was very popular last year with its great speed networking and ease of use and navigation. And we're also using Deggy World. We know that some of you are really wanting to be in person. So we also have on November 2nd, a in-person meetup set of events starting at 12 p.m. Pacific until about four. We are taking over the carousel at the Santa Monica Pier. So if you've got a ticket to Music Tectonics Online, you also have the option to come in LA. However, you need to RSVP. So if you've registered, check your email and make sure you've hit the RSVP so we can have a set of the new edition of the Seismic Shift trading cards with five new cards about seismic shifts that have happened over the last couple of years. We'll be at the carousel from 12 to 4. VIPs will head over to a nearby rooftop venue at 3 and at 4 o'clock. Everyone else will come into that rooftop venue from about 4 to 7. Come to Santa Monica on November 2nd, but make sure to RSVP. Look forward to seeing you online October 25th through 27th. And if you can make it November 2nd, hit the RSVP email. Thanks. Okay, we're back. And now we get to have some really a great, hopefully not too frightening fun. I have to admit, I'm one of those people that has extremely strong visceral reactions to horror movies. I can only handle the like psychological horror. Though I have to say podcasts have found a sweet spot for me in that I get nice and scared, uh, but I am not like haunted by horrible images for years to come. So it's, uh, it's <laughs> I'm actually uh, someone who enjoys being scared by sound. So I'm really excited to hear, Caitlin, how you have been breaking down the problem of how our brains, minds, and um, ears uh, lead to that emotion. Um, so anyway, let's talk a little bit about your research. First off, how how exactly do you structure experiments or studies? Can you give us like a, a, a layperson's view of what kind of technology or techniques you use to conduct your research on 
people. <laughs> Wait, that sounds really <laughs> awful. Sorry. On uh, you know, how how do you basically pin down what people are are feeling when it can be so subjective? That's a great question. Um, often with music and emotion studies, uh, we need to come up with some way that people can report their emotions. And we also have to make a really careful distinction between felt and perceived emotions. So we have to be clear when we ask subjects, we want you to rate, uh, or participants, um, we want you to rate how does this music, how well does it portray fear or how well does it, um, yeah, communicate happiness? You know, that's very different from how scared are you when you hear this? (laughs) Uh, so that's a huge part of what we do is making sure we make that distinction. And then there's a couple different methods you can use to measure emotion. Um, right now, I'm creating this database of really terrifying music and really anxious uh, music. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I want to hear about the techniques, but can you tell me a little bit about what's in this database? What are, What's some really <laughs> sure. scary music and what's music that will make you extremely anxious? Oh, this is such a fun question for me to answer. Um, so in horror movies, I, you know, there's always this music that is the suspense music, right? It's the music that's building up to something. Often you don't even notice its start because it usually creeps in very, very gently with these really high drone tones, these really high held pitches or like a shimmering kind of tremolo sound or a really deep bass drone coming in. Um, so that's the kind of music that's going to make you really anxious. It's very kind of um, it has this stasis to it. It's, you don't know when the next beat is going to happen. There's really unpredictable kind of melodic spasms and rhythmic noises. Um, and then when whatever it is that's in the movie that's going to attack finally does attack, then you have the terrifying music. And this is really different. This is pure like walls of chaotic sound. There's huge frequency ranges going on. It's um, it's often sounds like scream-like or like a car crash or you know animals shrieking. So there's, these types of music are very very different from each other, um, and that's part of why I'm doing this research. Is I think they're often lumped together as just scary music, but those have very different roles, and I think also induce really different physiological reactions and also like. Um, I guess that's the main thing, physiological yeah. reactions, but just general emotional sense is very How, different. So, <laughs> so I love that. the I love the thinking about the difference between um, you know what we experience and what we perceive. How so? How do you measure those sort of physiological reactions that are sort of the most our most basic response to auditory stimuli, like really scary strings? <laughs> um, well, you can you can measure skin conductance. That's one way. Um, cause that changes, uh, depending on your kind of arousal levels. That's how we talk about it. We, we talk about often emotion with this kind of two dimensional model called the circumplex model of emotion. And a lot of, uh, people doing emotion research right now have a lot of issues with this. It's definitely a flawed system, but essentially you have valence as one dimension and arousal as one dimension and arousal is sort of intensity of emotion. Uh, so can like calm would be really low arousal. Uh, really scared would be really high arousal. Um, and then valence is like negative positive. So really low valence, really high arousal would be somewhere where terror lives. <laughs> um, whereas like really high, really high valence, really high arousal could be like extremely happy, you know, something like that. Um, and so a lot of these physiological measures are based on arousal. So skin conductance, you can look at pupil size. Um, our pupils contract and and 
uh, widen depending on our arousal state. Uh, you can do heart rate. That's a good one and kind of an easier one to measure. Um, and you can also do, um, you can measure facial muscle movements because we often move our face in reaction to emotions that we feel. Um, and so that's another good way. And then I'm doing some fMRI um, studies as well. So I'm looking at images of the brain to uh, the brain activity, the bold response um, to see uh, how these things are processed. And I mean, it's a little bit different because um, the studies are over a long period of time. So it's not so immediate, uh, but yeah. And sorry, that's not the super clearest explanation, but basically the, the best ones in the, for pure response to things are going to be heart rate, skin conductance, pupillometry, and like facial muscles. Do you see a change as like, you know, we have these sort of visceral embodied responses to, uh, to to something that scares us and fear is such a basic animal emotion. And I, and I don't mean that in some sort of like bizarre 19th century, like animal spirits type way, but you know, we are, we are, we have like this long um, history in us, right. Of, of creatures that have lived and had you had to use fear to navigate their environments. Um, how, you know, like as we shift from that to sort of the brain finally catching up and going like, oh, wait, <laughs> you know, wait, wait, wait a second. I'm scared. And what's going on? And that I mean, do you see inter- anything interesting in terms of, you know, reaction to music or, or sound? Um, yeah, I mean, what what's going to happen is you sort of downregulate those responses. So I think, yeah, often it's a big challenge, actually, in studying scary music is differentiating between like a startle response, which is just a response to any loud noise. So like a door slam, um, a car horn, you know, and scary music. But we have to, how do we separate that out? You know, like if if reaction is only to scary music or because people are startled by a loud sound, um, because that's going to have that same kind of physiological response to as, as um, a lot of as fear in general. Uh, so yeah, I think with fear, you, you do have this, especially recreational fear because it's not real, right? Like um, when you're watching a it. scary recreational movie. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that's that a fantastic. fun term? There's a lab that studies recreational fear. It's the recreational fear lab. And I love, I'm a huge fan <laughs> of this lab. It's in Aarhus, Denmark. They're so cool. They like study haunted houses and stuff. It's amazing. Wow. Somebody needs to write a novel about the recreational fear lab. <laughs> I know. <laughs> They're really or make cool. A, make a movie or something. That's fantastic. <laughs> so so when we're dealing with recreational fear, do you see some differences? Yeah, I think you. <laughs> in- there's often this laughter response, right? Uh, because you get scared and then you realize it's not real and everyone laughs. Like you often have this when you're watching a horror movie in a theater, you know, there'll be some jump scare, the whole audience freaks out and then everybody laughs because they're like, oh, we're fine. It's okay. (laughs) They laugh because it was fun to experience that thrill of the adrenaline and the arousal, like, you know, um, skyrocket and then immediately drop again. It's kind of, kind of like a roller coaster, right? You're like, you're, you're doing that Mm -hmm. kind of scary dive down and then you come back up and it's fun and it's fine (laughs) for most people maybe not everybody so we were talking about what happens you know there's that first sort of startle response and trying to differentiate Mm -hmm. what's just a like a response to an intense bunch of you know to intense stimuli versus actual fear (laughs) i could talk about the recreational fear lab because they, they have these new theories about um why we enjoy fear in these settings and part of it is it relates to play and this sort of 
um, mm -hmm. evolutionary need to kind of rehearse things like uh, threatening situations, but then they're not real, right? So you're rehearsing it so that you kind yeah. of experience the emotions that would come with that event on some level, but a controllable level. And you also practice controlling those um, emotions. So I think that's really interesting. And I, I like thinking about that in relation to scary music too, and like music evolution on a kind of grander level. That is so cool. So I have a kind of a silly question, but what makes a sound scary? You mentioned mimicry or so being related to natural sounds or um, human sounds that are particularly associated with fear or pain or suspense. What um, are there certain kinds of frequencies? Are there certain timbres? Do you need a, a good attack on your sound? Like what, what makes a sound scary? That's a great question. Um, so one of the things is definitely unpredictability. That's a huge one rhythmically. So anytime that there's anxious music or terrifying music, it's either going to have this sort of um, continuity where the sound just keeps going endlessly and you can never tell when it's going to end or when there's going to be a loud sound that that makes things very tense for us because we can't predict what's going to happen it's sort of like trying to walk with you know like a blindfold or i don't know you just you don't know when you're going to hit something right and that's how the music is is playing with your mind um also yeah timbres you you want these really harsh ones uh, i have this paper on roughness it's a feature that basically is this harsh uh uh, noisy, grating kind of sound quality that we have in human screams. And in this paper, we found that it also is in terrifying music as well. That sounds very scream-like. It's this, this kind of harsh um, gratingness that actually communicates biologically that there's like some kind of problem, like it's, that you should feel fear because someone is screaming, essentially, is the signal. Um, also, there's other sounds, I think, that are mimicked. There's often this sort of low rumbling kind of sound going on that I think is very evocative of maybe an earthquake or some, it communicates like a large size, maybe some big creature or something like this. Um, and then you have a lot of these high pitched where they're kind of scream-like, but could also sound maybe like rats squealing or bats or, you know, birds or something. I think there's also an aspect to this pseudo mimicry that you know it's not actually what it sounds like which makes it even scarier because it's like what is that is it an Why alien doesn't it sound right yeah <laughs> it sounds like a human scream almost but like what kind of animal or creature or being is that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's scary <laughs> that's definitely scary absolutely <laughs> um trying to think of other things sometimes there's sounds that almost have a sensation to them like have you ever heard this is often used in horror films this really fast plucking on an instrument like you know really yeah poppy. yeah and to me mm -hmm. that that almost gives me a feeling of something crawling on me or something you know like mice or something <laughs> even though it's it has no touch feeling at all but there's something about that really plucky quality that gives a tactile feeling to me um I don't think that's, that's scary. <laughs> yeah, that that these are now. I'm I'm actually getting a little bit scared. I know that sounds <laughs> weird, but just talking about fear. So I'm gonna try to calm down for a second here and get a little less scared. Fortunately, it's daylight. You know, the birds are <laughs> chirping. It's all good. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. 
Uh, and then we're going to come back and talk a bit about what this all means and um, speculate if uh, Dr. Trevor will go there with me about what we what we could take away from this as folks interested in music and technology. So we'll be back right back after the break. Whoa, the ideas are flying fast on this episode. If you want to follow up on anything we're talking about today, we've made it easy. Head over to musictectonics.com and find this episode on the podcast page. You'll see show notes full of links and a timestamped roadmap of the conversation. We're not responsible for internet rabbit holes you tumble down in the process. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Okay, we're back. Whew. All right. This has been a really exciting um, exploration of uh, music, what makes music scary, how we react to music. So, Caitlin, what are some of the potential uses for the insights you're discovering? How is this helpful, relevant? Where, how do you see people taking this information in and running with it, either creatively or in terms of, um, you know, other other aspects of that you know audio can be used for helping people through difficult situations it can be used to um create an even more terrifying movie or haunted house how do you how do you see this being applied um well we definitely i hope that our database can be really helpful for emotion researchers um that there isn't really a database like this yet. I mean, there's, there are a lot of music and emotion databases. That's, that's true. But like I said before, any, any scary music is often grouped under this general fear category. And I think that can be potentially misleading if you have something that's more on the anxious side, something more on the terrifying side. And you're saying these results generalize to fear, you know, all scary music, that's not really accurate. So we're hoping that our database can be really helpful with that and help all kinds of scientists uh, learn a lot more about how humans experience fear, how they act when they're scared. These are these are really important things to know for society, um, especially, I mean, you, it's really relevant today with coronavirus. You know, we've seen a lot of how people react when they're scared and how they act as a whole, as a society, as individuals. And so, it's important to have really effective stimuli to test, to, to have these experiments um, so that you really understand fear. Uh, so that's one, one thing that I hope this can help with. Also, um, I think musical stimuli could potentially be used to help in therapeutic ways. Um, sometimes when people have like a fear-based disorder, maybe post-traumatic stress or anxiety, um, they often struggle with regulating uh a fear response to just everyday kind of scary stimuli compared to someone who's not dealing with one of those issues. So, you know, if you played them one of our database terrifying musical stimuli, they might have a harder time, you know, down-regulating that fear response compared to someone else. So I I have been talking with someone who does this kind of research um, and we were trying, we, we were hoping to maybe do some kind of study like this where we see we use the stimuli in like an fMRI paradigm and see how their brain responds. You know, it could even be used as um, the database could, the stimuli could be used sort of to test progress after different therapy to see if they're yeah. improving at downregulating. That could help. And I've heard of people who have severe phobias um, that they can slowly learn to uh, get used to exposure to what it is that causes them fear, like whether it's like spiders or snakes, that 
you know, I've heard, I, you know, that you, I've heard sort of about these long uh, periods where people are, you know, there's a spider in the next room and you touch the doorknob to the room, but the door's closed and then the door's open and you touch the doorknob, like slowly getting people really used to things that have caused them um, a pathological level of fear and threat. Um, yeah, I could see how music could play a role in, in, in helping people or helping people just understand, recognize fear or anxiety. Um, could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. I, I also think there's a, a resilience is really important, right, in human mm. existence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the recreational fear lab has been researching. They have some ideas about how we might we might do these recreational scary activities like watch horror films and play scary video games, partly um, to help build our resilience. They they had a paper where they were looking at how well people handled the COVID nineteen pandemic. And they found, yeah, that people who engage with scary media were actually doing better than um, people who did not and don't like to engage with it. So I think that's really interesting thing too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can have. So you have sort of the resilience building, terrifying album you could listen to. It's like the opposite of <laughs> yeah. some of those meditation apps. It's like <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna get anxious just for. 15 minutes and then you'll feel better. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Basically. It could work. Uh, so um, outside of fear, we've had a lot of fun talking about fear and, 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 you know, and tension and all of the auditory and, you know, physiological sides of that. I'm wondering though, are there some other areas related to, you know, what your lab focuses on or what your colleagues are working on? Um, some areas of affective neuroscience that relate to music or sound that you would love to explore more. Do you feel like there's any regions where there's a lot to be learned and this these this learning could have a lot of benefits for uh, for people, whether whether they're dealing with um, you know psychological issues or just wanting to uh, improve their lives using sound? What do you think? Is there any particularly promising area you hope you get a chance to explore in your career? Oh, that's a big question and a good question sorry <laughs> no it's okay and no I, one's gonna hold it to you no you, no one will hold you to this one because this is just a fun little music tech podcast it's all good yeah. um i mean i as far as my future career goes i love this topic of music and emotion and i think there's so much out there still to understand so i hope that generally i i get the opportunity to continue to ask questions about music and emotion um, and then one topic that has really piqued my interest, and I haven't had a chance yet to look into it, is authenticity, uh, the sound of authenticity. So um, even now, like a big part of our interaction is we're thinking about how authentic, how how truthful we're each being. That's a huge part of just communication, right? Like when you listen to someone, do you think they're genuinely you know, meaning what they're saying, or are they kind of disinterested, or they're not paying attention, or are they trying to lie? Like, this is a huge thing that we're figuring out just with our ears often. I mean, if we're in person, you can judge by body uh, language. But um, if you're not, if you're over the phone or whatever, we really use our ears to judge this all the time. And it's also a big part of music um, perception. So I feel like when people see performances, one of the things I often hear is, oh, yeah, it was really, it was a really authentic performance. It was really powerful. You know, they the, they believed the emotion the musician was trying to convey. Whereas if they didn't like it so much, they often say, oh, it was stiff. It was fake. It was too much. It was over the top. So 
those are, to me, those are really judgments of authenticity. And if the performer was really good at conveying that, it's good. If they're not, it's not great for the um, the audience. And I want to know, what is that? You know, how how are we assessing authenticity through sound? I think that's fascinating and really a big part of our life. And I, I don't think that there's been all that much done on that so far. So yeah, that's a topic I'd love to explore. <laughs> that's fascinating. And I could see with this interest in the tech community, at least in virtual environments, be that, you know, in a game platform like Roblox or Fortnite, um, you know, or virtual reality, uh, there may be sonic and auditory cues that would help us feel like this is a more that would either enhance our sense of reality or our sense of connection with other humans. So that could be a super interesting place to explore. Um, and I love that you're getting more specific about, you know, there, there's a lot of attempts at things like sentiment analysis, most of which come from, you know, the marketing world and are now being applied to music via lyrics, via, um, you, know, audit, you know, sonic analysis, that kind of thing. And yet we still have so much to learn about, both, uh, you know, how we just process sound and how we perceive sound. So um, I think there's a ton of relevance to understanding our emotions when it comes to what we hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a colleague of mine, she's doing really great work on this. She's looking at um, uh, real voices versus like digitally created voices wow. and how we respond oh, that's to them. fascinating. It's really cool. Claudia uh, Rosvandovic, she's doing really, yeah, good work on that. And that's a huge field right now, I think, is, um, yeah, how do we make artificial voices more real? And um, how do we make technology that can listen to us, you know, like Siri, and and hear us better and more accurately than than they do currently? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big field right now, I think. <laughs> yeah. A really cool yeah. one. That's that's fascinating. Or how do we make, you know, our authentic natural voices sound incredibly scary and artificial if we're going to try to in, <laughs> yeah. try to induce fear? Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Caitlin, for uh, exploring all of this with us and sharing your research. This has been a really, really, um, you know, it, um, we ended on a not scary note, which is good. Yeah. Uh, but this has been a fun roller coaster ride through recreational fear and how music is a part of it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was great, great fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know you can dig deeper into all our episodes with the show notes at musictectonics.com. While you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference, sign up for our newsletter to get updates, or get the Music Tectonics app for music tech news. Everything we do explores seismic shifts that shake up music and technology the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and find me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it, on LinkedIn. Bye-bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.